Happy New Year and welcome back to the Mongol Empire podcast. This is episode 3.3 and the third in the mini-series documenting the rise of Temujin. I had originally planned this as a 3-4 episode mini-series about Temujin, but the amount of material that I've got and our very slow rate of progression means that I've decided to extend it into a series in its own right. It does mean that the numbering for the podcast is going to be a little over the place, but that's not really a, a problem as such. So what we'll do is we're going to keep on pushing through until we hit that year of 1206, when Temujin becomes Chinggis Khan. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes of the podcast, it's well worth doing so, as it lays the foundation for everything we're going to talk about in today's episode and future ones. So just to recap, previously we dealt with the fallout of the family being abandoned by the leaders of the Taichigud clan. We looked at the events that shaped Temujin's youth, and we finished with him about to enter into the wider politics of the steppe, and this is where we will rejoin him today. So having returned the stolen horses and obtained his first retainer, Temujin clearly felt that he was able to support his mother and siblings. To ensure his family's security, he needed to expand his influence on the steppe, and the first stage of this was to get a wife. If you cast your minds back to episode 3.1, his father Yesugai had arranged a marriage between Temujin and a girl of the Ungarad tribe. Temujin now set out to complete the agreement. He took his stepbrother Belgutai, and they travelled to the Ungarad camp on the Karulan River. The girl's name, if you remember, was Bort. And her father, Day the Wise, was surprised to see Temujin again, but seemed to be delighted to fulfil the marriage contract that had been agreed all those years previous. The wedding party, which included Bort's mother, returned to Temujin's camp on the Sengo River. The couple were then presented with a gift of a black sable coat. Now that he had his own household, Temujin invited Bogorchu to join his camp, before he relocated to the source of the Karulun River. He now felt ready to become an active participant in nomad politics. Who were the major players on the Mongolian steppe at this point? Now there seems to have been five major tribes vying for power in the region. We have the Mongol, Tatar, Neyman, Karayid and Merkit. We've already discussed the history of the Mongol people up to this point, so I'm not going to repeat that. We know that the tribe was heavily fragmented, the clans were dispersed across the steppe, and they were really a shadow of their former power. The traditional homeland of the Mongol people was between the Kurlan and Onan rivers, in the northeast of modern Mongolia, and this is where the majority of the events that we've seen in Temujin's life have taken place. The eastern neighbours of the Mongol people were the Tatar. Their territory stretched from Lake Bue on the modern Mongolian-Chinese border to the Kingan mountain range in Chinese Manchuria. The Tatar had spent a large part of the 12th century benefiting from the support of the Jin, and it was the Mongol people who felt the brunt of this. Having once been perhaps one of the most prestigious tribes in the region, the name Tatar was now dirtier than mud. The strength of the tribe came from the large number of clans that made it up, and Rashid al-Din observed that a unified Tatar tribe could have easily overrun northern China. 
but there was little unity between the clans, and many operated independently, perhaps a result of Jin policy in the region. The next tribe is another that we have already met, although quite briefly. The Merkit were based on the lower reaches of the Selenga River, around Lake Baikal. They were not as large or as prestigious as the Tartar, but were considered to be ferociously warlike and powerful. Really though, we know very little about them, and we have to take Rashid al-Din and other chroniclers' words that the Merkit were a distant relative of the Mongol people. Temujin may not have realised it at this point, but the relationship between the Borjigin Mongols and the Merkit was already pretty strained. When Yesugai took Hogalun from the Merkit leader Chiladu, he began a feud. Yesugai's strength as leader of the Kiat and then his death had provided protection from any Merkit revenge, but Temujin was not in the same privileged position and represented a far easier target. So bear that in mind as the narrative progresses. But before it does, we've got two more tribes to look at. The first is the Neyman, who were centred around the modern Mongolian town of Kovd. They controlled a vast territory on the Mongolian steppe, which stretched from the Selenga River in central Mongolia to Lake Zaisan and the Irtish River in modern-day Kazakhstan. And the Neyman are a good example of how interconnected the steppe and settled societies really were. The name Neyman is Mongolian in origin, meaning eight, but the titles used by their leaders, Tayang and Gurkhan, were obtained from interaction with two of the northern Chinese dynasties. The title Tayang was a derivative of the Chinese Ta Wang, meaning Great King, a title given out by the Jin to a number of tribal leaders. The second title, Gurkhan, was a title used by the rulers of the Kara Kitai, the exiled descendants of the Khitan Liao. Interaction with settled societies went beyond their immediate neighbours. They had incorporated some of the trappings of the Uyghur court into their own government, and had been converted to Nestorian Christianity, which had spread onto the steppe from Central Asia. It's important to emphasise, though, that this wasn't a case of the barbarian slowly becoming civilised, as may have been described in the past. Much like the Mongol, Tartar and Merkit, the Neyman were a true nomadic tribe. They had seasonal pastures, and much like the other tribes, the fortunes of the Neyman still relied on strong leadership. If Rashid al-Din and the secret history are correct, then it seems like the Neyman had developed, or were in the process of gradually developing, more complex and formalised leadership structures, in many ways mirroring the way the Jurchen tribes had reorganised prior to the conquest of the Liao. Unlike the Jurchen though, the Neyman would never have the opportunity to establish an empire. The last of what I'm terming as the Big Five tribes were the Karaid. They lived along the Onan and Karulan rivers in Mongolia, and were comparable in strength to the Neyman, who were also their main rivals. Much like the Neyman, the Karaid were nominally Nestorian Christian, and Christian names had actually persisted down to the mid-12th century, with two of the known leaders being named Marcus and Kyriakus, or Marcus and Kyriakus. Both of these were dead by the time Temujin was starting his ascent to power, and the Karaid were now led by Kyriakus's son, Togaril. The history of the Karaid tribe, and their leader Togrul, is recorded by both Rashid al-Din and the Secret History, and it's interesting enough that I will be doing a short episode on the subject, 
So for now, just know that Togrel is considered to be one of the most controversial characters on the steppe. Those were the five tribes that Temujin will now be dealing with. The Mongol, Tartar, Merkit, Neyman and Karaid. Just as an aside, the geographic locations I've given should only be considered as a rough guide to the area of influence enjoyed by each tribe. Whilst there were traditional lands which were clearly demarcated in the minds of the nomads, there was no concept of land ownership as experienced in settled societies. Power was drawn from the size of the herds under their management, and a number of families who identified themselves as retainers. This meant that tribal influence was a fairly fluid entity, and it varied depending on factors such as alliances, warfare, and leadership. So, in the northeast of Mongolia, the Karaid were currently the strongest tribe, and also had an existing blood feud with the Tatar. This simplified Temujin's choice of patron. Taking the black sable coat he had received, he took Kassar and Belgutai to the camp of Togarul Khan, who was based at this time on the Tula River towards central Mongolia, and he was taking a huge chance. There was no guarantee that Togarul would accept Temujin as a vassal, particularly when he could offer almost nothing to the Karaid. Temujin was relying on successfully appealing to Togarul's vanity, and the hope that the Khan would recall the Anda relationship he had had with Yesugai. Confronting the Karayad Khan, Temujin said, quote, Since in the old days, you and my father were Ander, you're like my father. I've just married an Ungarad woman, and I brought you the wedding gift. End quote. Maybe I'm reading too much into this passage, but here Temujin has listed three things that he hoped would persuade Togril to take him under his wing. The first is the fact that Togril was Ander to Yesugai. The second was that he had got married and the third was the gift from the marriage being presented to Togril. Of these three facts, the second is the most important, because it goes back to this idea that power and prestige didn't rely entirely on martial prowess. Highlighting the Ander relationship between Togril and his father establishes a link between Temujin and the Kareid Khan, but there's no indication that Ander transcended generations, so this on its own would not oblige Togril to help Temujin. By stating that he had married an Ungarad woman, Temujin is showing that the Borjigin name still had some standing, and he could provide Togrul with a useful ally, particularly if he wanted to bring the Mongol people under the Karaid banner. Essentially, Temujin is saying to Togrul, Hey look, I'm Temujin, son of your blood brother Yesugai, a prince of the steppe. The rich Ungarad tribes still respect my family, despite us living for years on berries and bunnies and having no followers. I can be useful to you, so you should take me under your wing and give me power. Here, try on this lovely coat. You like it? It's yours! And Temujin's arguments clearly hit home, because the Khan of the Koreid responded with, quote, In return for this coat of sables, I'll round up all your people who have gone separate ways. Let my promise live here, he said, touching his back, and here, touching his breast with his hand. End quote. That the coat of sables is the object that seals the deal is a good indication of how reliable Togrul's oaths were considered to be. But by offering himself as a vassal, Temujin was providing his family protection from the more predatory clans and gaining formal recognition as a steppe leader. On his own part, Togrul was obviously keen to increase his own power, 
and perhaps he now believed he had a tool in which to bring the rest of the Mongol people under his banner. With the patronage of Togrul secured, Temujin returned to his family, where the positive effects of swearing allegiance to the Koraid quickly became apparent. Men who had given oaths and promises of service at Temujin's birth now started to come to Temujin to fulfil their vows. Among the first was the blacksmith Jarchigudai of the Uriankai tribe, who gave his son Jelme. Much like Bogorchu, Jelme would become one of Temujin's most trusted men, and one of the great commanders of his army. Before this was to become a reality, Temujin would need to have his first taste of intertribal warfare, and it would come pretty quickly. One morning, old mother Kogachin, who if we remember, was probably Belgratai's mother, was sleeping peacefully in her tent, when she was suddenly awoken by the noise of a large group of horsemen pounding across the steppe. She roused the rest of Temujin's camp, urging him and his immediate family to mount up and hide, thinking that once more the Taichigut had found them. Temujin, Hogalun, Kassa, Kachigun, Temuj, Belgutai, Temulun, Bogorchu, and Jelme each got onto a horse and rode off into the forests around Burkan Kuldun, leaving Kogachin and Bort to escape by cart. I don't know why Bort was left, but obviously she was seen as being a bit more dispensable. Perhaps realising the value of Bort, Kogachin put her in the cart and covered her with wool. She managed to convince the horseman that she was a simple sheep shearer who was returning to her own tent, having been working in Temujin's camp that morning. The horseman, unsuspicious at this point, continued on to the camp where they captured the few remaining people that had been left behind. On returning from this raid, they decided that actually it might be worth looking in the cart after all, and of course they found Bort, but that was the extent of this attack. They had little interest in capturing Temujin, and with Bort and Kogachin in possession, took the rest of their spoils and rode off. It was clear that this wasn't the Taiichi good, and their motives were completely different. So Temujin sent Belgutai, Bogorchu, and Jelme to trail the horsemen to ensure they didn't return. These three soon learned the raid had been carried out by the Merkit tribe, and we know why. This was revenge for Yesugai's actions years earlier. Why had they attacked now? Well, there may have been a few reasons. Temujin's approach to Togrul may have alerted them to the fact that the descendants of Yesugai still lived and were in a weak position. Or it may have been as simple as the move from the Onan to Burkan Kuldun had put the family within the Merkit sphere of influence. As I pointed out earlier, the steppe was a politically fluid entity, with the result being that there was good communication across it, so the news of Temujin's emergence would have travelled pretty easily. However, the Merkit had miscalculated. They presumed that Temujin and his small band were alone and weak, when in fact the opposite was true. All they had achieved was to reignite old grudges and mobilise some of the most powerful men on the steppe against them. Before he visited Togrul's camp to seek justice, Temujin made sacrifices to Burkan Kuldun, bringing it front and centre to Mongol religion and identity. Quote, Leading my horse down the deer paths, making my tent from the elm branches, I went up Mount Burkan. Though it seemed I'd be crushed like a louse, I escaped to Mount Burkan Kuldun. The mountain has saved my life and my horse. Leading my horse down the elk paths, Making my tent from the willow branches, I went up Mount Burkan. 
Though I was frightened and ran like an insect, I was shielded by Mount Burkan Kuldun. Every morning, I'll offer a sacrifice to Mount Burkan. Every day, I'll pray to the mountain. Let my children and my children's children remember this. End quote. The significance of this moment was likely only emphasised as the legend of Chinggis Khan developed. I'm not convinced that Temujin saw his sacrifices as more than an offering of thanks for the mountain's protection rather than the establishment of a kind of belief system. He may have dreamt about unifying his people and moulding them in his own image, but at this point there is no clear evidence of it. Returning to the Karaid camp, Temujin found Togril in a benevolent mood. He promised to do everything in his power to save Bort, even if it meant destroying the Merkit. In deference to the support he had received from Temujin's father, Togril committed 20,000 men to the operation and instructed Temujin to make contact with another young man with a growing reputation. Enter Jamuga. Jamuga's career had taken a similar trajectory to Temujin's. He had been born as the heir of the Jadaran, a clan that was distantly related to the Kiat. He had lost both his parents at a fairly young age, but instead of being cast out into the wilderness like Temujin had, Jamuga had managed to retain his status and was now leader of the clan. Despite being leader, Jamuga too had had his setbacks. Rashid al-Din reports that he was captured by Togtoga Beki of the Merkit and forced to submit the Jadaran to him. Described as a crafty and tricky character, Jamuga managed to work his way into Togtoga Beki's inner circle and gain the trust of the Khan and his officers, despite essentially being a slave. He used this to regain his freedom. Quote, Early the next morning, before Togtoga Beki had risen, and without the guards being aware of him, he and 30 of his liegemen burst into Togtoga Beki's tent without warning. There was no one with the Khan. Togtoga Beki was extremely frightened, and thought that he would do whatever he wanted. Jamuga said, Your sentries are most incompetent and off guard. Why don't they protect you? I have come in like this on purpose to see whether they were aware and guarding you or not. Togtoga Beki was quivering from fright, as he realised the truth of the situation, although Jamuga represented himself as having acted out of concern. End quote. Jamuga forced an oath out of the Khan to return everything that had been taken and release Jamuga and his people from captivity. Once this had happened, Jamuga sought out the protection of Togril to deter further attacks from the Merkit. The alliance between the two men had been profitable for Jamuga. The independence of the Jadaran clan had been maintained, and he'd been able to grow his own base and could call on 20,000 men to fight for him. But the relationship between Togril and Jamuga was different to the one that was enjoyed by Temujin. Whereas Temujin and Togril considered each other to be father and son, Jamuga was considered to be a younger brother. The older-younger brother relationship was a common one between the powers of East Asia. The Liao, for example, had attempted to form such a relationship with the Jin, even whilst the empire was being carved up. What this relationship did was to legitimise the position of each leader at the head of their respective groups, but it established one of them as the dominant part of the relationship. What this meant for Jamuga was that he was able to retain his independence, but he would have been required to pay a tribute to the Karayad Khan. Jamuga and Temujin had already met, 
and in fact had a pretty intimate relationship. Their first meeting happened when Temujin was 11 years old, and it got on so well that they pledged themselves as Ander, securing this relationship with gifts of roebuck and brass knuckle bones. This was reaffirmed a few years later, when the boys exchanged a bone arrowhead and an arrow made of cypress wood. The word Ander has cropped up a few times now, but what does it actually mean? In its basic form, it can be viewed as a relationship between two men similar to that of a blood brother. It placed them on an equal social level, no matter their circumstances, and ensured that each would have the political and military support of the other. But the diplomatic benefits should be viewed as a consequence of forming an Ander relationship, rather than the reason for becoming Ander. As 11-year-olds, it seems unlikely that Temujin and Jamuga formed their relationship with one eye on the future political benefits, so it may be better to view the Ander relationship as a recognition of shared values, deep friendship, and even love for each other. To become Ander was a serious commitment, and it was an oath that was very rarely broken. Having been alerted to the misfortune experienced by his Ander, Jamuga offers his full support to the campaign against the Merkit, Quote, when I hear Ander Temujin say, they've emptied my bed, it brings pain to my heart. When I hear him say, they've taken a part of my heart, it makes me grieve. We'll get our revenge by destroying the clans of the Merkit, and we'll save our Bortujin. End quote. He chose a meeting point at the head of the Onan River, and arrived promptly at the agreed time. It was three days later, though that Togrel decided it was time to show up, and Jamuga was not impressed. Quote, Didn't we say to each other, even if there's a blizzard, even if there's a rainstorm, we won't arrive late? Aren't the Mongol a people whose word is sacred? Haven't we said to each other, let's get rid of anyone who can't live up to his word? End quote. Togrel, being the big, powerful man, was completely unconcerned by Jamuga's outrage, and just slaps him back into place, emphasising the relationship between the two. Both men knew that Jamuga was not really in a position to punish anyone, so the Khan of the Kared was free to continue doing whatever he really felt like doing. What Temujin's role was in all of this is unclear. The secret history obviously puts him front and centre in all of the action taking place, but arguably his role would have been far more reserved. Temujin still had few followers, little reputation, and was untested in battle. If he was involved in any kind of leadership capacity, it was probably more as an observer accompanying Togril rather than leading the army. Indeed, the secret history tells us that the Korean army was split into two, one being led by Togril, the other 10,000 being led by Togril's brother, Jaka Gambu. Temujin was at the mercy of Togril's whims as much as Jamuga was. Finally though, the attack on the Merkit could take place. Rafts were built to move the armies across the river, and using the cover of darkness, the two armies swept into the Merkit camp, which was taken completely by surprise. Unfortunately though, the leaders Togtoga Beki and Deya Usan managed to escape in the confusion, but many Merkit tribes people were captured or killed as they tried to run away. The reunion of Temujin and Bort is one of the more heartwarming moments in the secret history, and really wouldn't be out of place in film or TV. In the midst of the chaos, Temujin rides through the camp, repeatedly calling out Bort's name. She was riding in a cart with Kogachin, trying to escape with the rest of the fleeing Merkit. 
but when she hears and then sees her husband on horseback, she climbs down and runs to him, grabbing his reins. Looking down, Temujin recognises his wife, dismounts and embraces her. They are together again. Time slows down. The noise of battle fades, as if they are the only two people on earth. End scene. Okay, so it wasn't quite like that, but you get the point. Bort was rescued, the objective of the raid had been achieved, and Temujin sent a message off to Togril to inform him of this. The Jadaran and Karaids stopped attacking, and a camp was set up in the ruins of the Murkits. The secret history is in no doubt as to who was at fault for this passage of events. It points the fingers at the three Murkit leaders Togtogabeki, Deya Usan, and Kagatai Damala. Not so much for carrying out the raid, that was part and parcel of step life. Rather, it seems to have been the act of giving Bort to Chiladu's younger brother that condemns them. The Merkit on their part seem to have been unaware of Temujin's political manoeuvrings. The unprepared state of the camp suggests that they did not expect Temujin to be able to retaliate, and most certainly not with 40,000 men. If the Merkit were aware of his alliance with Togril, it may have been the case that they were counting on Togril's unpredictability to work for them. Of the prominent Merkit leaders, only Kagatai Damala was captured during the raid. He was placed in a Kang and forced to lead Temujin's people back to Burkan Kuldun, an indication perhaps that the attack was one to repay the humiliation suffered rather than of conquest. And I can tell you are all concerned about Kogachin, so let's round off today by discovering her fate. As the armies were retreating, Belgutai was informed that his mother was also in the Merkit camp and reduced to the status of a slave. When she could not be found, probably killed in the chaos or prior to it, Belgutai lost control. Quote, he shot every person of Merkit blood he could find with blunt arrows. He assembled the 300 Merkit, the ones who had attacked Temujin at Mount Burkan Kuldun, and executed all of them. He then took as his wives those fit to be wives. From the rest, he took as his slaves those fit to be slaves. End quote. Despite the loss of Mother Kogachin, someone who was probably held in as high esteem as his own mother, Temujin's first recorded experience of battle had been largely positive. He had recovered Bort from the Merkit, enriched his people with wives, slaves and goods from the Merkit camp, and had two strong allies who were tightly bound to him by unbreakable oaths. There was just one other problem. One tiny snafu that came out from this adventure. Bort was pregnant. Check out the Mongol Empire podcast website at mongolempirepodcast.com where all the sources used in this miniseries can be found. In the meantime, if you would like to contact the podcast, you can email me at corrie, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com or I'm on Twitter at Mongol Empire Pod, and I will try and get a response to you promptly. Until next time though, thanks for listening and take care.